and you, you'll feel like you're doing everything right, but you're still not landing offer. It really depends on your learning style. Programming is an iterative process. So they just gave me the project. I, I didn't have to ask. I wasn't expecting it. And it was a big decision. A jar of salsa is like $9. Why is it $9? This is Chan with the Plan the Podcast, a podcast providing career advice and easy actual steps for frustrated professionals, helping you overcome career challenges so you stop feeling confused and defeated and start feeling focused and confident in order to excel in your career. I'm your host, Max Chan. Now let's dive into the episode. Hey, Shui. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. First off, congrats on your new job in tech. That's definitely probably one of the big achievements that you wanted to make before the year ends, right? Yes. I'm really happy to be in this position. I feel very blessed and very grateful. All right. And I think a lot of my listeners would want to know more about your story in regards to how you got to this point. But before we dive into that, why don't you introduce yourself to my audience in regards to like your educational background and how you got into the field of work that you're currently doing? Yeah. So my name is Shui. I went to school for electrical engineering and I minored in math. I felt like I kind of didn't fit electrical engineering around my third year. And then that's when I pivoted into software engineering. I had more of a focus on that. I got my first job at Herman Miller out of college. I had a few jobs before that, but that was my first like big girl job. I think I was there for more than a year and a half. And then I transitioned to Tesla which is where I worked as a software engineer. I worked as a software engineer before as well, but yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So taking a step back, why did you decide that electrical engineering was the, at least at the beginning, the path for you into university college? Yes. <laughs> so my university majors switch was, it was kind of a ride. I think I started off with psychology I started off with psychology in my second or third semester. I ended up being a teaching assistant and I just thought it wasn't challenging enough for me. So I decided to look into engineering. I decided on computer engineering at first and then pretty much the same thing happened. I felt like it wasn't as challenging for me. So I decided to do electrical engineering because I really enjoyed circuits and things like that. And then (laughs) I committed to it up until... Well, I graduated with an electrical engineering degree, but I committed to it up until the end of my third year where it was starting to specialize and I didn't really resonate with the specializations. And I've always loved coding and the coding just got less and less as I progressed in my degree. By the end of my fourth year or my final year, I decided that I wanted to do coding. I wanted to do software engineering. So that's how I end up in that path. Yeah. All right. So you said like you already had the passion for coding. So how did you discover that passion? Yeah, (laughs) I had a freelancing sort of gig when I was growing up. That was just how I had like side jobs. It wasn't completely like legal, but I'd started off with a game called Neopets where they taught you like HTML, CSS, like really basic stuff. But the tutorials were really in depth and I was able to pick it up at like eight or something. And I would spend hours sitting on my computer playing with these templates. And then I think I progressed to like Tumblr and I made more templates, which are in HTML and CSS and some JavaScript. And I think I did some WordPress too. And that's really how I started to get into like programming. And then I moved on to like languages like Java, Python, C is what I did in school. Is Neopets still around? I've heard of it when I was I think younger. it is. I think it really is. It's still around. I still have an account. I have to log in every so often because 
if you don't, they kind of wipe your account. And I've just, I've put so many years into that account. I have like the shield that says like 15 or 16 or 18 years. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's still around. For aspiring developers or software engineers, you know multiple languages, right? As you mentioned, yes. what's the differences between the languages you've learned? And why I'm asking this question is, if someone's getting to software engineer, they want to know which language to choose and they might choose the wrong one and then they might have to relearn a new or completely learn a new language. Yeah. So like, is there difficulties in regards to like learning one language and transferring that knowledge over or do you have to completely start over? So what's your advice on that? Yeah, so the popular advice is to start off with Python because it just makes sense syntactically. It's kind of like English and it makes sense. But I would honestly, and people are going to hate me for this, I would honestly start with like a traditional language like Java that has like for loops written out with variables. So Java or C, C might be a little hard for a beginner, but it depends, depends on what you practice on, right? So that's the advice I would give. I would start off with one of the traditional languages, because the traditional languages, you can sort of translate the semantics to other languages and you don't have to, you know, learn as much. But if you start off with Python and you try to transition to, let's say, Java or C Sharp, I've seen people struggle with that. So I would say if you are trying to pick up programming as fast as possible and you know your objective and your objective is like maybe like doing data or like making like a quick automation programs, start off with Python, but I would keep that one of those traditional languages in my back pocket. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you're saying to start off with Python first? I'm saying like do both if you can. So okay. Python and like Java, I would say Java really. People are going to hate me for that. Yeah. I would say, because like I said, Python is easy to learn, but to transition to a different language, I see people struggle with that. So if you want to understand how programming works, start off with Python, but still work on learning the, another language. Got yeah. it. And how long does it take to quote unquote master a language yeah. so that you'd be efficient if you were to get a job and use it consistently? Yeah. So mastering a language, how, what would you even consider a master? I would say if you have a good command of the language is when you can solve problems with it. How long that would take depends on the person and how they study and what their regimen is like. I would say if you're a beginner and you put in like a few hours a day learning, I'm sure you could do it in like a couple of months, you know? The conceptual part of programming is a little hard to grasp at first because a lot of the tutorials that you follow online, you just sort of copy blindly, you just follow along. So if you follow like a guide or a professor or a teacher, whoever that teaches you why things are the way that they are, why this works or like how it's assigned and stuff like that, I think that would be better. And that would really lend a lot to your mastery of the language. If you just want to like make a quick program, I'm sure you could do it in like less than a day. You know, if you just want to make a quick program, but mastery comes definitely comes to time. Yeah. So what do you recommend in terms of resources? Because there's obviously free resources, there's boot camps, there's, I guess, like Udemy as an example, where you could buy like a course to help you give you structure on how to properly learn a language. What are some of your recommendations in regards to finding the right resource to guide you to master a programming language? Yeah, I've worked with a few students who start from zero and I've worked with some students who have like some exposure to programming. It really depends on the person and that's just such a cop-out answer, but it really depends on your learning style. I've had people learn from books. I've had people learn from, like you said, Udemy videos. I've had 
people learn from like practicing it. They have like, like free code camp is a, is one that's kind of interactive and there's code academy. Personally, I like to learn the basics and then practice and then go back and forth. And then I will do like a quick review via like, like Udemy or a video like that. So it's kind of like jumping around a little bit, but if you want like a more streamlined approach, I would start off with like an interactive program like Code Academy or Free Code Camp that has projects for you to practice on. And you can kind of follow along and just try your best to be present in the practice. So you're not just, like I said, blindly copying or just following along, not knowing what's going on. Like if you don't understand how something happens, stop, pause, and then understand how you got there before you move on. Because coding really builds on its foundations. Going back to what you said about that, right? In school, People want to get the right answer, but they don't actually understand the application behind it. Mm-hmm. I think for programming languages, like you want to know how you actually did it, right? And sometimes the concept is not grasped. So what's your recommendation in terms of like really understanding that what you're doing than just trying to find the right answers to make your code to work? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Honestly, like Eve, I still do this at work. I still like try a bunch of random stuff and then hope, praise it works. I still do that. But to have that understanding, I would step through your code line by line because it's never going to be wrong. And what I mean by that is it's following instructions. If you tell it something, it will follow those instructions. So you're the one who's making the mistakes, you know what I mean? So I would step through the code line by line and understand each line. And then that's usually how I got around it. That's usually how I helped others in school understand code is taking it line by line, step by step, variable by variable. Yeah. Great. And you said you got your first adult job, so to speak, at Herman Miller. Did you get like an internship first or did you get it once you graduated? My school had what they had a co-op program. So I did do three rotations at co-op, but during in between those rotations, I was still working for them. So I was considered full time or whatever it was called. And there were a lot of students who did that. So I did do, I guess if you consider co-ops an internship, then I did do that. Yeah. Yeah. So how did that work? Did your school have a board of where companies could post co-op opportunities or how did that process work? Yeah. So my school specifically, I chose it because it was mandatory. You needed to have a co-op before you could graduate. And I wanted to get experience before I graduated. And it was built into the program. You had to take classes before you could do a co-op. And you stayed with the company for three years, but you kind of took a semester on, semester off kind of thing. And there was a job posting. There were a lot of resources available. And that's, yeah, I would say, yeah, they had like a job posting board and a lot of events and things like that. Was that your first interview in a real corporate environment or have you had like interviews before that? I've had interviews before that. I don't consider this a corporate environment. I used to be a kindergarten teacher. I used to be a yoga instructor. So I've had like those interviews before, but I think that was my first like corporate, like real corporate interview. It was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how did you prepare for that? And did you have any like nervousness or any of that? And how did you like be calm and be prepared when you had that interview? <laughs> yeah. I remember I was so nervous for the interview and I got a tip from someone. I don't remember. I think it was the co-op prep class. I got a tip from them saying, match the energy of the interviewer. And I showed up in like a jacket and like a full outfit and my interview, like my interviewer or the hiring manager showed up in a t-shirt and jeans. 
And he was sitting like this the whole time. He was just like swaying and like relaxing. And I was just so tense and nervous. And I was trying to match that energy. So yeah, that was, I remember that very vividly, like that experience. I think I did practice for it. I practiced a few questions with my roommates for the interview. And I didn't really flesh out my whole like career prep, you know, experience there from that point. I think I just got really lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so for that job at Herman Miller in co-op, was it a software engineering focus or were you still doing electrical engineering at that point? That was, so that's interesting. So it was electrical engineering focus because you have to do some requirements for the co-op to be considered for college credit. It was an electrical engineering focus, but I ended up doing a lot of software engineering. And I think it's what built my passion for software engineering because I got to practice those skills and I realized like, wow, I didn't go to school for this, but I know how to do this. I think I built a whole database for them. I still did like electrical engineering stuff, controls engineering is what we call it, working with controllers and like sensors and things like that. And I really enjoyed that, but I really enjoyed working on the database so much more. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So in a way, like you kind of found your calling when you... Um... Yeah. If you got your co-op in electrical engineering, did you like ask your manager, hey, I'm interested in software engineering, can you give me some projects? Or how did you get that additional experience on top of the electrical engineering job that you were doing? Yeah, I think the reason they hired me for that co-op was they saw that on my resume, I had that freelance thing that I spoke about earlier. And that really set me apart from the other candidates because they had a problem with their current website or their current management system. And they needed somebody who understood how to make websites or applications. So that really helped me stand apart. And so they just gave me the project. I, I didn't have to ask. I wasn't expecting it. I feel really lucky that they did that because, again, it was kind of like a, the first like domino effect for everything else to happen. Yeah. You said three rotations, right? So when the rotation was over, you were able to land a full-time job once you graduated? Is that how that process worked? So I was expecting a full-time offer. Me and my other, like my colleague, my classmate was expecting full-time return offers. But I think it was during COVID and there was just like no room for additional headcount in that department. And so we didn't get return offers. They did say that we did good jobs and they would if they had like approval to do that, but they just didn't have approval to do that. So I realized that I really wanted to stay within the company because their values matched mine. And I was very involved in the company. I was very involved in their equity team, for example. So I wanted to stay in the company. So what I did was I was applying for roles in different departments until I landed that software engineer role at Herman Miller in the smart office department. Yeah. Okay, so they didn't have headcount because of COVID. So you applied to other opportunities at Herman Miller and then you ended up mm -hmm. getting a software engineer job there? Yeah, they actually communicated that to me during my co-op. They were telling me like, it's like you should probably start looking for jobs because we don't foresee a return offer. And so I looked through the internal job board while I was there. I landed a few interviews, but I think they only did it out of niceness, not because I was qualified. And then... I, when I stopped that co-op, I had, I didn't have access to those inner internal job boards. I had to look at the external job board and that was a little bit harder because I couldn't just look up who the hiring manager was and talk to them. But I did eventually get a referral, which led me to meet with the recruiter. And then the recruiter told me about this role. And then that's how I ended up being there. Yeah. 
So one of the things I want to bring up is like how you had to overcome an obstacle, right? Because no one expected the pandemic to happen. So you were sure that you would get some return offer from Herman Miller. And then with what happened with the pandemic, you basically had to pivot and then be proactive in applying on your own at Herman Miller. And you were still able to get an opportunity. So what are some learning lessons you can give my audience in regards to like overcoming obstacles in your job search? Yeah. So I didn't get the Herman Miller job until I think like maybe four to six months later after my last co-op rotation might be longer. I started my job search really early for my final year. Like I think it was during the start of my final year. And I did get rejected a lot from other companies. And when you're going through that as a person that is entering the job workforce, that plays a little bit on your self-esteem because it's not something a lot of schools prepare you for. And frankly, like just from conversations I've had with others, schools sometimes are just outdated on the best practices. I'm sure they still give advice and they try their best to help you, but some of them are just outdated. And you'll feel like you're doing everything right, but you're still not landing offers. So I would just say, push through it, you know, take feedback in, work your resume, work your network. I didn't network at all. I did a little bit, but not a ton. Work your network, learn from your friends, like what they're doing, if they're landing offers. That's what I did. Like I would ask them like how they did things and how they approached interviews. And that really, I think that really helped. Yeah. Did you use your career center at the school? I did. Um, did? Oh, Because I, yeah. I did when I was in university. But yeah, yeah, walk us through that. Yeah. So I come off as a person that does everything right on the first try. That's what my friends tell me. That's what my classmates tell me. Like I come off as the person that always does like whatever she's supposed to do to succeed. So I thought I was doing all the right things. I was going to the career first. I started when I was in my sophomore year. Yeah, like my first year I started going to career prep stuff. I went to career fairs, even though I didn't have a thing lined up. I did all that. I used all my resources. I talked to the counselors. They were really helpful. Like they really gave me tips. Like I can show you my first version of my resume versus what I ended up with. It's just day and night. And they gave me interview tips. And sometimes they would write out letters on my behalf to companies saying like, hey, I have a student here who's really interested in this role. And that would turn into interviews or that would turn into a connection. And sometimes like it wouldn't turn into a job offer. And they'd still give me advice. I'm saying like these companies would still give me advice and feedback. So I would encourage students to do that, you know, put yourself out there, like utilize all your resources, give yourself the best chance that you can to succeed. Yeah, absolutely. And when you were pivoting into software engineering and you were applying to these jobs, did you feel that you lacked the experience that you think that they needed? And if so, how did you push through saying that you do have the skills to be of value to these companies? Yeah, a few of the companies that rejected me gave me feedback saying that my background didn't align with their expectations. For example, like they would just blatantly say like I had an electrical engineering degree and that's not what they're looking for. Even though I had a lot of projects like software engineering projects on my resume, what else? So that was one feedback that I got. And then my coding skills, because I didn't go to school for computer science and I didn't take those classes, I was kind of weak in that area. So what I did was I would take that feedback and I would keep trying. I would improve where I could. I practiced more. I did more projects. I made sure that my understanding was good. Like I said, my mastery so I could pass those technicals and 
quite honestly. I would make it to like the final rounds, but then I would never be able to clear <laughs> the final rounds and the feedback would always be the same. It's just like, they're just saying that I wasn't good enough or like I wasn't up to their standards. And I had my sights set pretty high because I was, I felt like I was in a really good place and it would have to be a really good opportunity for me to move on from there. And yeah, but it was really demotivating <laughs> getting no after no after no after making it so far because it seemed like everybody liked me and like I just didn't have the hard skills that they were testing me on. So how did you improve from the first interview to the one that you ended up getting? Like, What were some of the changes that you made to make yourself the candidate for them? I think it started off with my soft skills, my interview skills, I was polishing that up. I worked with a mentor, I worked with some professionals, some of them were even students still, but landed offers in like the companies I was targeting. So I practiced that. And then I practiced my hard skills, which a lot of companies, a lot of these top tech companies do leak code style interviews, which I don't agree with but they do a lot of that and it's just the game that you have to play to be able to get in and I found my I participated in different communities online a lot of different coding communities programming communities and that helped because I had I could ask questions when I ran into a problem I could get help from others or I could help others and that really helped and I just practiced a lot <laughs> like I just pushed myself through it and I always made sure that whatever I was learning was sinking in so that I could apply it in the interviews for these engineering jobs I'm assuming it's a combination of again like you said like a technical test and then a behavioral component what's the advice on the technical side like behavioral like uh, you know follow the star format all that stuff but what is your <laughs> advice on the technical aspect of the interview especially I'm assuming that these are timed assignments as well yeah. Okay. So for the OA, the online assessment, which is usually the screening, and this is for software engineering. I'm not sure if other engineering does this anymore, but for the online assessment, you just have to come up with the best solution as you can within the time given. And I would encourage you to write a lot of comments explaining what you're doing, but it's basically a pass fail situation. Like for Google, I think I only solved like 70% of the question, but it was like a pass fail thing. And I, passed and moved on. When you get to maybe the second, third, or final rounds, it gets a little bit trickier. So from my understanding and from the feedback that I've got from these interviews, I think delivery matters a lot. So if you're good at coding, if you're good at solving these questions, these puzzles, but your delivery is really bad, I don't think it works out in your favor from the feedback that I've gotten because I've helped students who are phenomenal at coding and Sometimes their delivery is just a little bit off. So I, they told me I made it that far because even though I didn't have the perfect solution, I walked the interviewers through my thought process. I was able to articulate my ideas. I was able to give examples. I was able to tell them if I didn't know the answer, I would say, I don't know the answer for this particular situation, but here's what I know so far. And this is what I would try. A lot of cases I ran out of time and then I would just explain what I would have done if I didn't get into that roadblock. And the feedback that I've gotten is that really helps push you through because I am not good at lead code. I really am not. It's just, <laughs> I've had friends tell me that I'm okay, which is really saying something <laughs> because I'm really not that good. 
That's yeah. actually pretty interesting you mentioned in terms of like these time tests that even if you don't finish, as long as you can explain what you were planning to do, that actually mm-hmm. does help. Yeah, and I think it does help because in the real world, like you have deadlines, but you're not going to be like monitored and like solving puzzles on the fly in like 30 minutes and coming up with the most optimal solution. Programming is an iterative process. Like you're going to have to go through it again and again. So some things that I also did during the interviews was I would ask questions, even if I knew the answer. So if the question was like one plus one, I'd be like, is it one as an integer or is it something else? Is it a float? You know, I would ask questions, clarifying questions like that. And it just showed that I was thinking through the problem is what they told me. Great. So you were at Herman Miller for a few years. When did you decide that it was time to make another move? Many people, they might stay at the same company, try to move up, but you decided to take another direction and look externally. How did you come to that conclusion to decide that going to another company would be the right move for your career? Yeah. So I really liked where I was. I was learning a lot and I was adding value. I just felt like I was growing in a direction. And there's like a few different reasons why I decided to move on. But I felt like I was growing in breadth rather than depth, if that makes sense. I felt like I was learning a lot of different things, but it wasn't in the direction that I wanted to be heading. And that was my main concern at that role because I brought it up, but it didn't really turn out to be anything because like we were kind of a strappy team at the time. And yeah, so that was one of the reasons. And then another reason was like, I wanted to do more front end stuff like with React and this opportunity allowed me to do that. I guess for people who are like hesitant on leaving their company, I'm trying to think like long-term, like if I continue down on this path, where will I end up? And I just, like I said, I was growing (laughs) in like all these different directions, but I wanted to be more focused. All right. So in regards to you starting to look elsewhere, what was your game plan? Like, did you find out these are a list of companies I want to go to? This is what I want in my next job. What are some of the things that you researched before you started implementing your job search strategy? Yeah, I was honestly not like, I have to get a job. Like I was very passive about it. I had a good situation. Like I'm very lucky to be able to say that not everyone is in the position that I'm in. We have the luxury of even like, not applying to jobs someday. So my approach was, I did have a target list of companies that I wanted to go to. That's something that I learned is to be more, I think they call it the sniper approach instead of the shotgun approach is what they call it. So I did have that target list of companies that I wanted to get into. Tesla was not one of them, but (laughs) it like weaved its way into my list eventually. Yeah, but every one of those on my list, I would make it as far as I could and then I would get a no in the end. Yeah, but I did start off with a list. Okay. So as you were going through like the interview process at these companies, how did you end up getting the Tesla opportunity in terms of like applying for it or hearing about it, applying for it, and then working your way up until you got that job offer? Yeah. Honestly, it's a little bit of a mystery to me (laughs) because I didn't apply for, I don't think I applied for a role on their website because I was approached. And this is another thing that I teach is that visibility is very important because it draws people to you instead of you reaching out multiple times. So I remember I got a message from the Tesla recruiter. I've been messaged by Tesla before, but it didn't turn out to be anything. But the recruiter messaged me, I think he got a referral from somebody who 
had my portfolio or my website. I think that's what happened. <laughs> he said he got it from somebody who wasn't able to refer me because he was in the hiring hierarchy. So yeah, that's what I know for now. And then when I talked to him, I had a friend who offered to refer me, but we were so far along in the process. I don't think it mattered. Yeah, but that's how it happened. So I post a lot on LinkedIn. I had a portfolio. I had a website. What else did I do? I commented on other people's posts and I was just a presence. I just made sure that I had a presence on LinkedIn and I did get a lot of messages because of that. Yeah. All right. So what is some advice for someone that wanted to get into tech such as Tesla in terms of like preparation, what type of values they look for and then candidate, like what are some things that you're able to share? So if someone's looking to move into tech, whether it's like Tesla, Amazon, those companies, yeah. what's some advice for them so that they know what they're getting into going into these interview processes at these companies? Okay. Disclaimer. I just started Tesla. So like, it's been like more than a month, but some advice for people who are heading down this road, who want to get into big tech for whatever reason, you know, it's brutal. <laughs> It's really like, I remember feeling so disappointed in myself, but the reality is you're competing against so many brilliant candidates who probably have more experience than you, who probably went to more prestigious schools than you, who, you know, like all these things. And some advice is that you just have to make yourself stand out, like find out what you're good at and showcase that, you know, like showcase what you can do. And First line of defense, you show it on your resume. Second line of defense is your supporting work, your portfolios and whatnot, posting on LinkedIn, like building that credibility and that social proof a little bit. I think that helps. And then making sure that your hard skills are up to par, like the coding and the mastery. So I think Tesla and most, I know that Amazon is pretty streamlined. Like I can sort of predict what the interview process is going to be. I think Google is pretty streamlined as well. You can read about that on the internet. Like they'll tell you exactly what's going on. But for Tesla, I think it's different for each department. So when people ask me for advice, I don't know what to say because it's different for each department. Based on my experience, it was very holistic. It was based on mastery, how much I knew about the stack or about concepts. So it was easier for me because it was something that I had done for a while. So they were just asking me like mastery questions, just like box model stuff or things like that. So that's why I think I succeeded because not a lot of people put effort into that part of that interview because everyone expects it to be lead code style these days. But there are still companies out there who do, I would say like they would ask you to build a program rather than solve an algorithm. They would ask you conceptual questions rather than solve an algorithm or come up with an algorithm. So there are companies who do that, who are still out there. And for those companies, I do a lot better. So maybe if you're not like really hitting it with the elite code style companies, I would go and look for those big tech companies. And there's a list of them online that are, that's like on GitHub. We can like link it or something. <laughs> yeah, sounds yeah. good. And how long is the interview process from like, I know recruiters reached out to you, but once you were in the funnel, so to speak, how long did it take you from interview to job offer? Yeah, I got, a verbal offer, I think a month after like the first contact with the recruiter, I think I got it in a month, but there were so many approvals and so many hoops we had to jump through 
that it's stretched out to like almost three months, I think, for me to like sign and like get everything in order. I think it was like two to three months. I think it was three months because I was really stressed about it. <laughs> yeah. You said they stretched out your process, right? So was there like, for example, like two week gaps of like silence? Did mm -hmm. that happen? Yeah, that did happen. But it wasn't anything they could do from my understanding. It was just they had to get approvals from the director level so that they could bring me on board. And those were the hardest weeks because I would try to stay in touch with my recruiter, but he wouldn't have any updates because, you know, like the recruiter's not going to bug the director <laughs> for a software engineer role. But so I understood that, but it was still really hard going week after week because I had other verbal offers on the table, but nothing concrete. Because I think now the trend is for you to agree to a verbal offer before they send you an offer letter. And I didn't know what to say to them because I didn't know what this opportunity was going to turn into. I don't think they dragged it out on purpose. I think they were moving as fast as they could. But the recruiter was responsive to you even when he had no update? Yeah, it's because I bugged him. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, because like, yeah. a lot of people get irritated and say, oh, like, no update's better than silence, right? Yeah, um, yeah, even, like, no update is still an update, you know? And I bugged him, like, I would say once a week. I would be like, hey, how's your weekend? <laughs> um, yeah, this was my weekend. I mean, I might as well get to know you since we're in this waiting game. And I don't know if I, like, recommend that. <laughs> Because not everyone, because they're so busy and you might not even get a reply. But I was lucky enough to have that kind of conversation with my recruiter. Great. You said you had other verbal offers, right? So like, do you have to do a balancing app where you're trying to like push Tesla to like, hey, I got some offers. I have to make a decision or like, how did that work? Because you didn't want to lose this opportunity, right? Because I'm assuming that was yeah. your number one option. Yeah. So the other offer, I was very transparent with them. I think that's the way to go. Some people say leverage your offers and like play that whole game. And that might be the smart strategic thing to do, but I didn't know how. I was very transparent with him. I just told him like, hey, I have like these other offers. They're offering me this range. And I was wondering, I did leverage it. Like I did tell them what the competing offer was. And I think they matched it or something like that. They did the best that they could. And I just had to reject the other offers even before I had the Tesla offer like signed and sealed and it gave me a lot of anxiety. <laughs> yeah, because like I said, the other companies would not extend a formal offer without getting a verbal acceptance. Yeah, so I did have to juggle that a little bit, but I was very transparent with my recruiter. So you basically took a gamble. So you rejected verbal yeah. offers in hopes that this one would come through, right? <laughs> yeah, because he was like, really reassuring to me he was telling me like we really want you to come just in there so that assured me a little bit but i know that things can change like anything can happen so i just decided to take that leap of faith yeah and you're still working at herman miller right so it's not like you had no job you basically yeah were looking for the right yeah. opportunity for you right yeah and honestly i was sort of considering you know just staying there i didn't really consider it like a real opportunity because i didn't have that signed offer letter i was just hoping for it but i was like if this doesn't work out it's fine like i said i wasn't actively searching you know what i mean yeah okay going back to like you wanting to make a move to another company you also had to move states as well for this job so mm -hmm. when you were looking to like move from your previous job at herman miller did you cast a wide net or was that a bit later saying hey i think i should look at other areas not just where i was at the moment 
That's a really difficult question because I remember I struggled with that a lot because my role at Herman Miller was remote and I was very comfortable with that. There were some reasons that they wanted us to go back to the office, but that's like political drama. <laughs> but for Tesla, they made it very clear that you had to go into the office for certain days. I think it was hybrid when they started telling me. And it was a big decision. It was really like scary for me because I... <laughs> I had just gotten used to my environment. Like I had a flow. I knew where things were. I had people that I relied on. And yeah, it was a really big decision for me, but I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember how I weighed the pros and the cons. I think I just realized that I like this was the next logical step for me if I wanted to head in the direction that I wanted to go in. All right. And you're in Seattle now, right? Yeah. I know you're still in the U.S., but is there a big like culture shift in regards to like where you were before and then now in terms of like the city, uh, the work environment, nightlife, things of that nature? Yeah, I definitely got culture shock because nobody laughed at my jokes. <laughs> like that's the biggest one that I have. Like in Michigan, I don't know. We're all just very family oriented and we're very polite to a fault, really. And I just picked up the habit of like laughing at people's jokes all the time because it's polite. And I came here and I met some people and they would say something funny and then they won't laugh at their own jokes. And then I would laugh like a crazy person and then I would laugh at my own jokes like a crazy person. And they were just like, people talk about Seattle freeze and I felt that. Yeah. (laughs) So that was a big culture shock. The prices, like cost of living, super high. Really still not used to that jar of salsa is like nine dollars why is it nine dollars i've made some friends here but i haven't made like a ton of friends you know what i mean like to have like a full social circle so that was a big change and yeah you mean like work friends or were you like going out and like for example like you did yoga before right so are you like making friends through yoga if you are doing yoga in seattle or like how how are you building up your social circle in the seattle yeah so my social circle was basically my engineering friends really like people I met in engineering and (laughs) so I like stuck with them even if they like moved away like we kept in touch and there were still people in Michigan that I was close with like that's how I made friends really was from school and I didn't really make a lot of friends at work at Herman Mill like friend friends like I could meet outside of work I think I was the only one without a baby or like a child. So it was hard to relate. Like they would talk about their like toddler problems in work chat and I'd be like, yeah, I totally get it. <laughs> and then here, I guess like I don't really have a strategy to make friends. I've been talking to people on LinkedIn because Seattle is just such a bigger city. I've been talking to people on LinkedIn and meeting up with them with interesting folks. And that's how I've been approaching it. But I've only been here for like a little more than a month. So I'm trying to be patient about it. So obviously you took a leap of faith in regards to like moving to a new company and moving to like a new city state. Again, there's a lot of professionals, especially on LinkedIn that want to get into tech, but there has been a lot of layoffs in tech, as you're aware. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your advice in regards to someone wanting to make a jump now, especially with a lot of uncertainty in the market, especially in the tech industry? Yeah, this is a spicy question. I know you warned me about this, but I didn't prepare an answer. I've been doing a lot more like research so i don't understand the layoff situation i feel like people are just well there's like two camps of thought right there's one camp where these companies overhired 
because they projected something and they overhired for that. And the other camp is like, they're just panicking and they're trying to prepare for something that's coming. That said, I still get messages from recruiters that are claiming to be on a hiring freeze. So I don't know what's going on with that. I have friends who experience the same thing. So it is definitely harder to get in, I feel. And especially when like their official statement is we aren't hiring right now. But I still believe in like that visibility thing I talked about, how like you start attracting people to come to you because I've had recruiters who, like I said, have claimed they're on hiring freezes, but they're still considering you for the position. So maybe it's like a, we'll interview you now and then consider you later situation. I didn't really entertain it, but I would focus on getting your foot in into something stable (laughs) because everything's crazy right now. Like this is a risk, right? Like the company that I went to, like it was a risk for me because I don't know what their future is, but then it was a risk for me to stay at Herman Miller because I didn't know what their future was there either. So yeah, I would put yourself first and maybe if now is not the time, if like things aren't aligned for you, that's okay. Like I believe that things that are for you will find a way to get to you. And yeah, I don't have like strategies or secret job, hidden job markets for you, but that's just what I know right now with the current situation. Yeah, again, you have to control what you can control. And like what's going on right now is not going to be like this forever, right? Things will recover and then it might be better opportunity later down the road. So if you aren't hopeful right now, just wait out until it improves and then you can start applying and be more aggressive, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, like I said, I don't really know what's going on because the recruiters are still reaching out to my friends and they're still interviewing, but they're on a hiring freeze. And Don't believe everything you see or hear from the media, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really enjoy our conversation. I want to end this conversation with one last question I asked on my guest. As you know, mm-hmm. I brought you on this podcast because I want to help my audience overcome common career challenges that they'll face in their career and help them get to the next level. So for you, from your career trajectory, what was one big career challenge that you had to overcome and how did you overcome it to get to where you are today? Yeah, I know to a lot of people I've made it. One big challenge that I had to face was every day I had to choose myself, you know, like I had to bet on myself. I had to believe that I would get it someday, you know, and that's really the hardest part. And I overcame that by, I mean, it's still a struggle for me, you know, that self-esteem thing. But I think it got better when I worked on myself. Like I worked, like, you know, your areas that you think you can improve on, work on those areas and like take it a little bit every day so that you sort of build that confidence and that evidence that, you know, like no one's going to choose you more than you. No one's going to like fight for you more than you. You know what I mean? So with that in mind, I would encourage your viewers or listeners to constantly bet on themselves and move forward with that. Yeah. Sounds great. And obviously you're still active on LinkedIn. So tell us more about like what you plan to do with your LinkedIn personal brand and how can people reach out to you to learn more about what you do and how you can help them? Yeah, I will say that I had a viral post blow up. So I have like three, 4,000 requests that I haven't like made through. So if you send a note 
that will help a lot. <laughs> if you introduce yourself, that will help a lot. If you comment on something of mine, that will help a lot. Um, so that's the best way to get in touch with me because I know that a lot of students or early career professionals want like perspective and advice and maybe I can help in that area. I've never thought of like my personal brand seriously. <laughs> I think I just want to project like this approachable person, authentic person. That's kind of what I want to be seen as in terms of content i want my content to be helpful and if i know i'm not that funny but like i try to be funny yeah but mostly i want my content to be helpful and to reach others so that i can better help them because that's really what my goal is that's why i volunteer and stuff is to help others because i had a lot of help i had a lot of mentorship and i think that's where i'm at today yeah Sounds good. So send me a message. I'd love to connect, but please leave a note. If not, you'll just get buried. <laughs> yeah. All right, great. Again, I appreciate your time and appreciate the advice that you've given my audience and enjoy your new role. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here's three ways I can help you achieve your career goals for free. First, subscribe to this podcast as I post two episodes a week. Number two, leave a five-star review as this helps build the credibility of the show so we can gain access to more influential people to interview and bring those lessons to you to help elevate your career. And number three, connect with me on social media. There's a link in the show notes for you to click on that compiles all my active social media accounts, making it easy for you to find me and connect with me. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, Thank you.